0: If you're listening to this show, you probably like history. If you also like bourbon and want to dive into the history, science, and stories behind the labels, you have to check out Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. With three new episodes every week, you can learn all about the best bottles, the personalities behind your favorite brands, and get the juicy scoop on all things whiskey. For example, I just learned that bourbon is a distinctive product of the United States. It can't be produced anywhere else in the world, kind of like champagne. And no, not all bourbon has to be made in Kentucky either. Join your hosts, Kenny, Ryan, and Fred on an epic bourbon adventure. Subscribe and follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdel Jabbar. What's up, my friend?
0: How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual, feel like a little spry today. This is one of the few times uh, in our history of recording the podcast that we did a twofer back to back. And uh, yeah. Yes. Feeling pretty good. Yes. This
2: episode is going to be most likely re- uh, released. Maybe a couple of weeks after we record this, it is Mm -hmm. April the 10th on Sunday, so um, we're recording this as a backup, basically, so um, (laughs) over the next couple of weeks, both of our calendars are getting pretty crazy, so we anticipate not being able to record an episode, so we're recording this as a backup, so when that time inevitably comes, it could come next week, could come the week after, we're prepared with an episode, so we don't leave you guys hanging. Because I know sometimes yep. when we miss an episode, people are like, what the fuck, man? <laughs>
1: Where's my content, hey! man? <laughs> Where's the content, man? <laughs> we need more.
0: I mean, the, the episode is going to be nascent, right? So, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks, you know, but this, you know, will have relevancy, I think, for at least a few months. Um, uh, and it has, you know, to do with the Russian-Ukrainian or uh at least maybe some of its origin points. So, uh yeah, uh, I think this will work regardless of when we drop it.
2: Yeah, so we're going to try to aim this to be a little bit more evergreen and what we're going to talk about today is the Maidan Revolution, the Ukrainian Revolution in 2014. Um I'm interested just to talk about you know what were the events that led to it and you know what what happened on the ground because um it's a very complicated story, and it is also a huge turning point in history, as it turns out. You know, you can could, you could make the argument it's, it's, um, it signifies the, the really, really the origin or the beginning of the current conflict going on. And if you want to look at it, look at it in a, a grander scale, you could say that it is like the um, origin of the new multipolar world. Could be. It's When we've talked about it prior, I don't think we've talked about it with that significant context. But now looking back at it, I think the, the 2014 uh, change in government, revolution, coup, whatever you want to call it, is, is just going to be known as a, as a really big turning point in, in human history. Um, I think along the lines of, maybe I'm speaking too grandiose right now, but um, along the lines of like Archduke Ferdinand being shot, and murder, mm. and you know, really signifying or, or or leading to the events of World War One. Um, because well, for know, our sakes, mean, I hope
0: that it, it turns I, out to be that you're wrong. Because <laughs> I'm I, I, I really I, not,
2: I hope, yeah. yeah, I hope I'm wrong too. And, um, but just like the immediate impact of the 2014 revolution, you know, it led to the immediate Russian annexation of Crimea, the eight year civil war in Donbass. The heightened tensions between Russia and the West, um, you know, domestic political crisis in the U.S. with Russiagate, um, the eventual impeachment of Trump for withholding aid to Ukraine, but, you know, most importantly, this terrible war that hopefully is over by the time this episode has been released, but I'm not holding my breath. You know, we've talked about this, but just never in that great detail. And there's a lot of different sides of the story. So I wanted to try to present these sides in an objective manner, um, so people listening can make up their own mind. I know it's kind of impossible to do that because we're not totally objective beings, nor could I present every single side of this revolution because it's just outrageously complicated and there's so many contradictions in the story that, it, at the end of the day, it's still you know kind of unconclusive of what happened um on what to think about you know the 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 2014 Euromaidan or um, or revolution of dignity um you know whose fault was it you know was it an organic protest or was it a US backed fascist coup did Yanukovych deserve to be overthrown in the in the past when talking about the Euromaidan um i have always stated that the US was heavily involved overthrowing viktor yanukovych but you know, I've always just boiled down my evidence down to the leaked phone call from Victoria Newland speaking to Jeffrey Pyatt about the successor to Yanukovych uh, two weeks prior to the revolution happening. Um, you know, she had correctly anticipated the choice of the new prime minister, uh, Yatsenyuk, a.k.a. Yats, who she's referring to on the phone call. Uh, you could even say that she selected the new prime minister. So I wanted to, to explore all this. Now, what makes this so complicated to understand is that just, there's um, a, a sharply divergent narratives propagated by Ukraine in the West on one side and then Russia on the other side. In the West, of course, is called the Revolution of Dignity. The Euromaidan is, is presented as a, a democratic and peaceful mass pro- protest movement that you know, overthrew this government led by a puppet of Putin. I have a, a quote from a um, historian, Stanislav byshok who kind of underlies a lot of the roots of Ukrainian nationalism. And uh, do you want to read this or?
0: Sure. Yeah, I'll take it. Ukrainian nationalists tend to interpret all facts linked with the history or modern Russian-Ukrainian relations exclusively in the terms of Russian imperialism that seeks to invade, oppress, and enslave tiny Ukraine that has been struggling for independence for centuries. After a referendum and following the return of Crimea into Russia, this myth has significantly strengthened, spreading on a bigger number of formerly apolitical Ukrainians. While it was trendy in Russian politics just a few years ago to accuse the opposition of, quote, working for the U.S. State Department, it is now popular in modern Ukrainian politics to accuse rivals of, quote, working for the Kremlin. For instance, former president, uh, Jesus, Yushchenko's electoral slogan ran, quote, the only one who is not controlled by the Kremlin. So
2: let's let's hit on this. So this is a pro-Russian writer. Um. I'm just going to be transparent, and or at least I don't want to say pro-Russian writer, but at least a uh, writer who explores the elements of like you know the right wing in um, in in Ukraine. And when I listened or or talked to Russians, this is kind of like the the narrative or spin I get. Oh, poor you know Ukraine just feels sorry for itself. They're always trying to present themselves as a victim. They always say that they're. They always um, their excuse for everything is Russian imperialism. Um, This new Ukrainian nationalistic movement is is a new uh, phenomenon. Um, You know they've always been part of Russia, and this movement was propagated uh, by external geopolitical motives, such as like the Germans financing and and funding the uh, Ukrainian nationalist movement in the early 20th century and and so on like that. And now we're kind of seeing a repeat with the United States and, and the West.
0: Uh, kind of more importantly that, that it was rooted in anti-Russianism rather than, you know, being like an organic thing.
2: Yeah, I- exactly. Or anti-Russianism. So I think there's truth on both sides to it. Um, I certainly believe that Nationalism is a very powerful force, or when those um, wheels start turning, when people start to collectively see themselves as one group, usually that is in response to another group they see as an oppressor. I mean that's like a, a common origin story of of uh, nationalism, and once a group is uh, kind of sees themselves as a group, then it's very hard to tell them that they're not a group. Right. You know what I mean? You can't say, mm-hmm. like, oh, well, you're not a real group. You only existed for 80 years. And I'm not, a, I'm no expert on Russian Ukrainian history, but that seems to be a narrative that would piss people off. Like, you're not in a real group. It's like kind of yeah, like the Israelis calling the Palestinians not real people.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, you're not a real people. You're just Arabs who took the name Palestinian as a way to, um, Kind of nationalize your your movement, but you guys are just Arabs, part of Jordan and part of uh, Leb. You know, you're di- you're from different Arab states or or uh, nomadic herdsmen who um, who never really saw themselves as Palestinian prior to the Israeli state being formed, and mm-hmm. that's when you decided to um, you know collectively unite and and uh, form these terrorist movements.
0: I mean, kind of independent of, of histories, you know, you, you bring up a really good point, And that's like, who is anyone else to tell someone that they're not a thing? You know, once they've decided that, that's just, that's kind of that, you know, and in the case of Ukraine and, and Ukrainian identity, regardless of, you know, the, the history behind it, and there is a, a very complicated history of Ukrainian independence and, and the Ukrainian identity, the case and the reality on the ground is that they're a thing. Because they say they're a thing, and that's that.
2: Yeah. Well, it's like saying there's no such thing as American because American only existed, you know, after the 18th century. There's no no American race. You don't have the same heritage. You You don't have the same heritage as someone who has lasted like a nationality that has lasted the length of time. But the thing is, though, is that almost every nationality is invented in the 19th century. Right. If you just look right. at like the history of nationalism, most states didn't collective the peoples of of a state didn't collectively see themselves as one until these national these movements of nationalism really kind of ramp up in the you know the late eighteenth century and the nineteenth century.
0: That's what these arguments on the Russian side kind of frustrate me a bit. That when when we go down the rabbit hole of like, oh, Ukraine isn't a thing because history. You know, it really it really begs into question. Like if we if we use this argument, we can break down a whole lot of people. (laughs) You know, we can take down a whole lot of nations uh, like their credibility. So, you know, it's it's a it's kind of a troubling kind of argument. And it it doesn't really doesn't really hold firm for me, at least.
2: Well, here's the thing. It's with the war. More and more Russian speakers are sympathizing with the you know they're starting to see themselves as Ukrainian and I have no doubt it's because of just you know the invader occupier dynamic sure now sure. Um, so it just it just complicates things even more because I guess it was less in 2014 there were very were I mean there really were kind of these cleavages that were I don't want to say clear but a little bit more um binary than they are right now now mm-hmm the major cases of violence and just going back to the coup or the revolution the major cases of violence are blamed on the police or agents working for Yanukovych or Russia Um, that's what the western narrative is that it was Yanukovych and or you know Russians you know secret agents basically going in there and provoking and causing the mass the the violence um but on the other side on the russian the russians have labeled the euromaidan a fascist coup for example sergey lavrov said that the russian government had evidence that the right sector coordinated sniper shootings during the maidan protest to create chaos and you know to create that pretext to overthrow the government mm-hmm. and can uh, you tell you know, us, right can sector you tell us-
0: Sorry, I was just going to ask. Like, could you could you explain who the right sector is? Because I think it's important, um, you know, for us to all know, like, what that is.
2: The right sector is a Ukrainian fascist political organization that came to existence through a merger of several ultra nationalist and openly uh, neo Nazi groups, and uh, these groups were, or they included uh, a group called Trident a group called White Hammer, Patriots of Ukraine. So a bunch of smaller political organizations who were, you know, sympathetic to to real hard right-wing politics, um, even Nazism in some case. We're talking about not Nazi as in every Republicans a Nazi type of thing. Uh, we're talking about like the uh, grandsons of members of the Galatian SS type Nazis mm-hmm. who have swastikas. You know, on their on their license plate or something. You know, like they're mm-hmm. like real mm-hmm. na- Hitler lovers, um, Nazis. <laughs> you know, the guy they the guy that they they tend to worship is Stefan Bendera, who was the head of the Galatian SS, who perpetrated the Holocaust in Ukraine. And so, we're talking about some nasty figures right,
0: right. here. But, but um, we're also segmenting them generally yeah. from the Ukrainian people who are also involved in the. Uh, in the the protests that led to this incident. The
2: Russians also claim that the U.S. government was actively working with the right sector to do this. Now, I don't think there is any evidence that the Russian government has released to support this claim. So we don't know. It's possible because, you know, there's there's, um, uh, evidence that the CIA was working with Ukrainian um, Nazi types after World War Two during the Cold War in the fifties and sixties. So maybe those contacts could have survived, but or or at least that kind of uh, that um, that rat line, what you would call it, could mm-hmm. have lasted the time. But I think yeah, there's there's no like direct evidence or like declassified documentation that that directly uh, that uh, links that. I guess you're kind of you're making that speculation. Maybe there's speculative evidence, but you know I wouldn't want to make that claim that yet, at the very least. Um, In addition, the Russian media often exaggerates the role of the far right during these events. So you know they'll they'll just do things that they don't need to over exaggerate it. You know to the point where you're just like, okay, you didn't really need to over exaggerate it, and the fact that you over exaggerated it makes it seem less. Reliable, For example, Mm -hmm. they called uh, ordinary protesters neo-Nazis when they were actually just ordinary protesters. You know, they were just saying, you know, the media reports would be like, oh, a bunch of guys, people with with red and black flags. The red and black flag meant blood and soil. It was the more, you know, scary flag than the Mm -hmm. blue, um, yellow, and... um, Fuck! Why am I forgetting the third color? The blue and yellow. Yeah, there's only two colors. I'm dumb. Yeah, just two. The blue and yellow flag. How could you forget? It's uh, been plastered everywhere. <laughs> I know it's been plastered in everyone's Facebook and uh, Twitter handle. Um, but you know the the red and black flag is is like the backdrop of right the right sector. You know they had said there were some contradictions where they said that some protesters at specific times were holding that flag, but they actually did have the blue and Yellow one, but I guess that's not really that important. the por- The point is that, of course, they're going to use that as their own political propaganda to justify what they want, you know their their policy agenda to be, uh, because it is a pretty good justification. Hey, like there's some Hitler loving Nazis over there. Right. We have we're we Need to go get rid of them. We need, we need to go get rid of them. Right.
0: Um, but on the but other the, hand, the, the the exaggeration on that point is that you know, they the the argument for or I should say against the Euromaidens, you know, um, the Euromaiden being a revolution and rather being a coup is that, you know, they're they're basically inflating the the Nazi aspect of it. Because there were in fact Nazis there, but you know, as we'll discuss later, there's you know, they certainly weren't the first and, you know, they weren't all of them either. Not even close, right? Um, but we'll, we'll talk more about that later.
2: Yeah. So on the other side, the, the Western media, uh, in the, in the Ukrainian media, they basically said, no, there was no, not, there was like a couple of Nazis, but not really that many. Like they're just totally over-exaggerating it. The -hmm. truth is it's somewhere in the middle between there's no Nazis and there were, everyone was a Nazi. There was way more than just a couple of Nazis, but there were less than everyone in the in the protest was actually a Nazi. So it's somewhere in the middle and you have two um, forces that are heavily motivated to use propaganda. It's, it's, it's very difficult to find out what's true and what's not true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way I look at it is that, you know, let's just say at the time that um, I think it was around 2% of the poll of, uh, of the polling uh, voted for the far right groups that's still like more influential than a libertarian party in the United States. Right. You know, you know what I mean? So there was a level like that's not, it sounds insignificant, but it, it's still, it's their, their power doesn't come necessarily from their numbers, but it comes from just, um, you know, the, the extreme length they're, they're willing to, to go, uh, to achieve certain goals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, despite not being the majority of protesters, they were extremely important in overthrowing the government. Yep. For example, on February 5th in 2022, so recently, so just days before the current war broke out, um, Yevhan Karas, who is a member of the neo-Nazi group C-14, he said in a public address, um, LGBTQ LGBT, LGBT, and foreign embassies say there were not many Nazis at Maidan, maybe about ten percent or real ideological ones. If not for those eight percent of neo-Nazis, the effectiveness of the Maidan coup would have dropped by ninety percent. The 2014 Maidan Revolution of Dignity would have been a gay parade if not for us. He then went on to say that um, you know the West armed Ukrainian ultra-nationalists because. Um, In his words, so this is a Ukrainian nationalist talking, saying, hey, yeah, we were a small number. We may have been 8% of the protest, but we were the hammer because we have fun killing, direct quote. So um, there was clear advantages of working with the far right uh, in the Euromaidan protests because they're willing to do violence to achieve their goals and um you know there's many testimonies to in footage to support this so again like the question is where does the truth lie
0: yep kind of before we get into that I, I i wanted to flesh out a little bit this part kind of caught my eye when i was reading through you know your notes and and doing my own research is the the part that the lgbt activists were you know it, what, what they played in this initial revolution it's, and i found that really fascinating um so I, I pulled a, um, uh, uh, an article from Cornell International Affairs Review uh, and it's called A Silent Dissonance, LGBT Rights and Geopolitics in the Maiden and Post-Maiden Ukraine. And I found this, it was written in 2016 and I found it really interesting because I wasn't aware of, you know, the the, the situation for... You know LGBTQ communities in Ukraine and how that even had a role at all in in this conflict and and I'll just uh, kind of summarize a little bit for you. So you know some history that they bring up is that in '91, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine made some history by becoming the first post-Soviet country to decriminalize homosexuality, which is pretty crazy, you know, um, because generally speaking, the uh, USSR was pretty homophobic in general. And frankly, so was most of the world. And 91 is pretty early on that front. Um, but, you know, other than this achievement, you know, the conditions for the gay community in Ukraine have been, you know, at a low point uh, for many years. They, they have suffered violent attacks, you know, uh, against their population in many years. And, you know, I think the reason why it was kind of allowed to happen was because there was no no article in the Ukrainian criminal code on hate crimes committed on the basis of sexual orientation, right? So these were just regular crimes uh and so were prosecuted as such and and you know, yanokovych their government, you know, they basically completed a deal um with the former prime minister uh Tymoshenko uh and they were helping to negotiate with the European Union to join the European Union, but Ukraine had to meet certain criteria requirements. And one of those requirements was actually an anti-discrimination bill that should have been implemented in Ukraine, which would have finally protected, you know, the LGBT community, you know, in Ukraine, uh, you know, under these strict federal, but also international laws. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, there was this big propaganda machine You know that was mostly fueled by the Kremlin in this case in Ukraine um, that was going against the EU bid Um, and a lot of the argument or at least some of it hinged on this idea that joining the EU is gonna turn Ukraine gay (laughs) you know Um, and there were still a lot of people who are very homophobic you know in this in this political climate and you know this they started using this as a wedge issue you know they pretty successfully weaponized the gay rights issue and you know turned it against the you know the process of european integration and you know what i find interesting there is that i, I wonder out loud to myself and this is something i'm curious about your your point too did was it that that you know ukraine or, or russia generally was super homophobic and that's why they opposed this? Or was this just kind of a a neat little issue that they can use, you know, for their overall policy objectives, which is, you know, preventing a Ukrainian alignment with the EU?
2: I I would imagine that most people in Ukraine, um, despite whether they're pro-Russian or pro-Ukrainian, are probably not necessarily uh, tolerant of of gays. and, And that's probably why it was used. But pulling this back... You know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine had very strong regional political cleavages. Western Ukrainian regions have generally voted for pro-nationalist parties and uh, favored the independence of Ukraine from the Soviet Union and Russia. But in contrast, many Eastern regions have often backed pro-communist and pro-Russian parties. For example, in 2004, uh, presidential elections during the Orange Revolution, this, this was the second election because the first election was allegedly fraudulent, Viktor Yushchenko, the pro-Western candidate supported by nationalist parties, received more than 90% of the votes in Western Ukrainian regions compared to less than 25% in Eastern Ukrainian regions. Now Viktor Yanukovych, the pro-Russian candidate or the neutral candidate, however you want to define him, um, there's arguments for both received more than 70% of the votes in eastern Ukraine, and less than uh, 7% in the western Ukrainian regions. So there's like these very clear um, regional differences or regional voting patterns, even more so than a place like the United States, where, you know, a lot of people kind of boil down like, oh, the North is blue state and the, the South is red state. I mean, that's a very mm-hmm. binary way to sum it up, but it's kind of generally true, but, you know, there's, there's obviously differences. In, in, in uh, Ukraine at that time, there, there were these clear differences in voting patterns depending on what part of the country you lived in. And most studies of voting patterns in Ukraine attribute regional differences to ethnic language differences. There is this huge debate over the way that geography intersects with political attitudes and behavior in Ukraine. Most scholars, what they suggest, that they suggest that reasonably, you know, well-defined geographic divides they do exist. Others suggest, though, it's a lot more complicated than just regional divisions. Which, again, I'm sure it's, it's, it's true. But if you take it at face value that geographic divides do exist, the next step is, is to consider how that impacts political behavior. Um, I, I read this um, th- like this real interesting study by this um, Ivan Kachinovsky who links the regional cleavages in Ukraine to differences in, in political culture and um, to be more specific he was um, linking them to these very distinct historical and religious legacies so um, when we say the term like regional political culture it refers to values and norms that are shared by many residents of a particular region so this can be something like, um, you know, just like a shared history or a shared gripe within a, within a region. Like there's different political cultures across the United States. There's a different political culture. In, in the United States, it's not really um, state by state, but
0: it's... C- community by community, even?
2: It's community by community, but I think the easiest way to... See the uh, the breakdown the voting patterns is is a rural district by urban district
1: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky. In
0: line at the deli, I guess? Uh Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting.
1: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidly prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth better yet what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely that's what i like to call redacted history i believe that all history no matter how good or bad needs to be told there are wars massacres battles and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books have you ever heard of mary bowser i didn't think so My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Urbans,
2: urban areas tend to vote Democrat, and rural areas tend to vote Republican. That's like the easiest way to break down the cleavages. Then there's dem- demographics as well. You can see voting patterns by you know, gender, by race, by education, you know, there's these different religion. statistics, Re- yeah, by religion. When political scientists, they examine this, these are the types of things that they're that they're finding.
0: And, um, you know, these- Well, I mean, it's the reason why you see, you know, these, uh, a lot of the campaigns will reach out to these very niche, you know, communities in crazy places all over the country to, to garner the support. Um, because they'll find uh, you know a, for example, there might be a substantial um, population of Jewish people in Brooklyn or something like that and they'll shape their their uh, political outreach around those issues surrounding that community to garner support for their candidate. Uh, meanwhile, they'll turn to a completely different side of the country where you know you might find, uh, a completely different community uh, with absolutely different priorities and, and opinions and they'll shape their political messaging to meet that uh particular area so i mean you're on to something in the sense that like there sometimes we do vote based on you know things like race or religion or or uh, um, specific region that we live in um, and it's just kind of the political reality and you see this the evidence of that in voting, but also the evidence in that in the way that politicians campaign.
2: Yeah. For, you know, a font, a, an example would be if you look at like Republican primaries, one of the big groups that they cater to are Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. because that's the only conservative voting block in New York, basically, right. is, is the Orthodox Jews. So you'll see a bunch of like, you know, um, Republicans going down there talking about how much we're going to support Israel. Uh, I mean, at the same time, campaign.
0: they'll go down to Florida and and pander to the, you know, the Cuban, the Cuban Republicans. Um, yeah, exactly. Republicans. Like, you, you know, know totally different group of people, right, with different priorities. Uh, so,
2: yeah. We're, you know, we're tough on socialism and communism. We know that you love America and <laughs> yeah. came seeking freedom. You know, like that's, that's yeah. the way that you, you tailor it. But, um, you now these, just going back to like how political culture is shaped, it's it's transmitted by, you know, socialization with family, school, religion, and you know it's it's trans it's transmitted you know from one generation to another. The thing is, Ukraine includes regions that have belonged to different states for significant periods of time. The Lviv region, the Turnipole region uh, were part of Galatia, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy from from seventeen seventy two to World War One. These regions became part of Poland until the Soviet-Nazi Pact of nineteen thirty nine. There is the Shermesti region, which was ruled by the Habsburg Empire from seventeen seventy four to World War One, and then by Romania in World War II. and then there is uh, Transparthia which belonged to the Hungarian part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire until World War One, and then to Czechoslovakia and, and, uh, until World War Two. And there's also the Volan region and the Ravine region, both parts of, of Valenia province. It belonged to Poland in the periods between the two world wars. All these regions, which collectively are, are referred to as Western Ukraine, were incorporated into the Soviet Union as a result of the Soviet Nazi Pact of, of 1939 and World War II. Now in contrast, regions of historically Eastern Ukraine were ruled by the Russian Empire from the end of the 18th century and then by the, and then, uh, by the Soviet Union. And then um, also take note that you know, the interruptions of Russian and Soviet rule in Eastern Ukraine were very brief. So these territorial divisions help create these different national identities. Now, it's also important to note nationalism is a relatively new phenomenon. It, it, you know, we said this earlier, but it didn't really start spreading until the, the, the late 18th century. Um, so there's a, there's a really great book, and I'd recommend reading it. It's by Shlomo Sand, who's an Israeli historian. And, um, you know, he writes that Most of the agrarian societies that preceded the rise of modern society in 18th century Europe developed statewide supercultures that influenced their surroundings and gave rise to various collective identities among the elite. Yet, in contrast to the image that a good many history books continue to peddle, these monarchies, principalities, and grand empires never sought to involve all the people in their administration of superculture. They neither needed such participation nor possessed the necessary technology— with which to foster it, the peasants, the absolute monarchy, monarchy in the pre-modern world were illiterate and continued to reproduce their local unlettered cultures without hindrance.
0: That's pretty interesting, man. It it sounds like, like it makes sense to me, and it, it also just complicates the issue of national identity, generally speaking, because you know when we're talking about arguments uh, like against a Ukrainian identity. You know, and they'll say, Well, it was owned by this country or that, you know, regime or this kingdom or that empire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. You know, the reality, at least, that Shlomo Sand points out is that, sure, those places were like owned by those countries, but the the impacts of their influence on the culture and the language really was not as pervasive throughout the entire region as as one would suggest right so you know sure in 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 the big city or near the what he calls the political center that connection was very strong the language was very close to the central administration the culture was probably impacted and shaped by those by those parties but out in the fields they were doing their own thing you know so you know it, it kind of brings up this idea that the national identity, at least as we see it in this post, you know, in the 18th century plus, you know, um, uh, uh, time period, it's it, the, the people who have the control over particular regions had less to do with the national identity as we know it today than what what is suggested or what is used to make arguments for or against the validity of, an, of a nationhood or of a cultural identity.
2: Yeah. And, you know, what, he, what he's essentially saying is that prior to, nas- to the rise of nationalism, local religious and, and uh, you know, status-based identities were dominant among the various people um, in, in a country. And that applies to pretty much every country. You know, their mm-hmm. local cultural identity was the more dominant factor in who they were. So, you know, there wasn't, you know, there is no, here's an example I use like every time we speak about nationalism. But if you went down, if you went back in time to somewhere in, in the 1400s or 1500s and you talked about the United Nations, they they really would have zero clue what you're talking about because they wouldn't understand the concept really of a nation, you know, of one, you know, country and nation weren't really synonymous with, with with one because when you say nation you're really just talking about community that's what a nation is you know mm-hmm. there's there's the Rutgers nation I'm sure there's like <laughs> fan you know there's Steelers nation there's Ravens nation there's there's um, you know the nation really just refers to you know the collective group and the nation state is just you know the collective is is the um,
0: is a state ruled by that identity right so a collection and, of people, Community of people in a distinct, or sometimes not distinct, <laughs> geographic boundary. Yeah,
2: and when you go back in time, the reason why there there wasn't these these large these uh, these movements these nationalistic movements why they're relatively new is just because of technology. It's because prior to the 18th century, most people were illiterate so there wasn't this mechanism or this way to really transmit this to transmit like these um the shared history to each other the right. shared culture to each other or the idea the, of a natural
0: the, national identity. yeah the
2: like the idea because it takes a lot of work to create a nation it takes a lot of academic work you really have to like sit down and write stories and write a history and and um Spread get those stories. media on your side <laughs> and then spread all that to all these different people. So they're like, oh, okay, we're all part of this great Thank nation. You. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it requires an Ill- a literate population to do that. It, re- it requires a somewhat educated population to do that, um, to get them all involved in the fold. And um, you didn't really start seeing that until the 19th century. So that's why nationalism was... A late phenomenon, why it's relatively new, because um, prior to that, we just society civilization just didn't have the mechanisms to mass, um, to um, t- to mass assimilate people. It's, there's nationalists in America, but everyone is a different ethnic group, really, or they they can trace their their order, old country, you know, to different places in Europe or, or South America, all or, over the world, or, at or this really point, all over the world like you know there's what makes you American is not well what's supposed to make you American I I think different people have different concepts of what American is but what's supposed to make you American is like the love of liberty and the common language and and um, you know the shared admiration for the founding fathers and, and all that stuff and I mean I guess people do have different concepts of what American is but relatively speaking I think those are the shared stories that we have you know, the liberators of France in World War II. Um, Declaration of Independence. America. Just name out. name. You know the song America Fuck Yeah? Yeah. Just name all the things in America Fuck Now. Yeah. And that's that's the
0: American identity. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's one way to look Starbucks,
1: at it. Yeah, video. <laughs>
0: that's one way Baseball. to look at it. <laughs> I, I think more importantly, and, and, and this is something that just dawned on me really, is, is the... You know collective agreement you know that to be assimilated sometimes can be forceful but what that doesn't necessarily make a strong national identity what makes a strong national identity is a bunch of people agreeing that they are a thing right and what it comes down to is the difference between like being a subject of a you know central authority like a government or a dynasty or an empire, like you can be the subject of the Roman Empire out in God knows where, you know. But it doesn't doesn't necessarily make you feel like, yeah, I'm Roman. You know what I mean? But the difference is the difference with nationhood and national identity is that that Roman I know Rome doesn't exist anymore, but that Roman would have to agree, like, yeah, I'm Roman and I have a shared experience with other Romans, no matter where they are. Um, and I agree that's that's my thing you know i say because i say so you know because everyone else says so right it's it's this tacit approval that is necessary to make to make it strong and to make it a thing yeah and you know a case study that
2: some historians use is macedonia that Mm -hmm. that that was like the first nation state sure there's other there's other case studies too um that I'm missing, but I know that's one at least in Europe that they're like, oh, that was like the you know that that actually had close characteristics of what a nation is, Macedonia, well, you know the the Greek. Um, I guess they weren't; they didn't really consider themselves Greek, but you know the the country of right? they, yeah, they considered North
0: themselves different, right? Yeah, they considered themselves something
2: outside of Greek, and mm-hmm. it it was something else. It was something between barbarian society and and Greek society. You know they they had a their own like military identity of like using cavalry and stuff, and instead of like you know being totally relying on the phalanx, and they um, you know they had their own language or at least their own dialect that was used to um, kind of unite this real strong professional army to take over and conquer Greece and you know pretty much every, everywhere from greece to india yeah now um but you know that's something that obviously deserves it's more like scrutiny and like oh like academic study but that's just an argument that i've that i've heard that they were they were they had the characteristics of a nation state before uh modern history started now um Where was I talking about? Okay. So we we just talked
0: all about the Western side of of Ukraine and and kind of the breakdown. Maybe we can talk about the Eastern side because it's different.
2: Yeah. So one more. So one more thing. Um, The reason why these systems developed, you know, the West and East, they developed differently is because there was a more democratic political system in the Austro-Hungarian Empire compared to that in in the Russian Empire. And it gave West, Western Ukrainian intellectuals more opportunity to spread their ideas and to cultivate a national identity. In mm, contrast, different. the Russian Empire was much more strict on Ukrainian regional autonomy. You know, they prohibited the activity of Ukrainian political organizations and associations, and you know they restricted the use of Ukrainian language um, in education and print. So. Um, another thing is the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church in Galatia played a, a significant role in the development of Ukrainian national identity in, in, in contrast to the Orthodox Church um, in the Ukrainian regions of the Russian Empire because the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is like seen as a branch of just the, the Russian uh, patriarch so um, you know the Greek Catholic Church is, is obviously different from the you know the Orthodox Church uh, and where you know the Western the Western uh, Ukrainians are, are largely Greek Catholic. Um, but the Russian Empire treated Ukrainians as a regional group, and the Ukrainian language as a, as a rural dialect of Russian, it was called Sarjuk. And it's important to note that the communist political system was not established in Western Ukraine until you know, 1939, until after World War II, really. So Soviet totalitarian policies aimed at significantly reducing or eliminating regional differences, they actually backfire. And it actually you know fostered this distinct political culture in Western regions. Because in contrast to other institutions, the family outside of direct Soviet control, um, you know, generations born before Western Ukraine became uh, under the soviet role um you know continued to influence political socialization of you know the generation born in the soviet times
0: so that's um, another example of like okay soviets might have claimed laid claim to the land but you know in the west which is far from the political center uh, of moscow they were doing their own thing
2: yes it's exactly now I have a book so I got a quote from a pro a very pro-Ukraine writer and it's from a book called Ukraine What Everyone Needs to Know and the quote reads rather than being a Russian region of Ukraine the Donbass is a Soviet so just to give some context he's talking about the Donbass region and why in 2014 there was like a very pro-Russian sentiment and why they eventually broke You know formed into these two autonomous zones and this was an interesting um, quote that i had never really considered rather than being a russian region of ukraine the donbass is a soviet industrial region uncertain of its place in the new ukraine originally migrants from russia or ukrainian peasants assimilated by Russophone factory life donbass workers identified with the glory of their soviet built but now inefficient mines and smokestack industries Major battles took place in the Donbass during World War II as both Hitler and Stalin coveted the area's coal and steel. Post-war reconstruction soon re-established the Donbass as a major Soviet, Soviet industrial region, complete with the attendant mythology of heroic miners who always answered a party's call to labor and defense of the motherland. In other words, the Soviet authorities were rebuilding the Donbass as a model Soviet land at the very time when they were treating any manifestation of Ukrainian identity as suspect. The atmosphere was ripe for assimilation not all new workers in post-war donbass were newcomers from russia some came from solidly ukrainian-speaking provinces but the workplace culture gradually
0: molded them into russian speakers okay so that's kind of an another example um but in the contrary there was th- this region in the donbass was important and so the soviets and then later russia had a vested interest in you know, building it up, it was an, it, it, it was the industrial center, so to speak, right? And both the importation of actual Russians plus the assimilation of Ukrainians who lived and worked there created a different culture. But what this
2: what this does it just it highlights the complexity of the issue. See, I had never, so what he's basically saying is that the, like, you know, these people were Ukrainians, but what happened is that Soviet, there wasn't really a strong national identity because these people lived in the Russian Empire and never developed that, you know, Ukrainian heritage and the workforce culture that the Soviets uh, implemented was just too strong where these people assimilated, even Ukrainian speakers assimilated into the workforce culture and they had this pride of the Soviet Union. Because the Soviet Union had, you know, won these battles during World War II, and there's this whole mythology, you know, behind the um, them expelling the Nazis, and uh, you know that's where where these Ru- these Russian speakers and these Russian leaning or these these rebels where their their origin story comes from. You know, their their admiration for the Soviet culture of the old days and how great it was, and you know. It, Another thing to take note is that um fuck I just lost my train of thought. I was gonna say something important. <laughs> hmm. Oh yeah, so uh, something I noticed was that I was watching I've noticed that a lot of like um pro Don like uh Donbass rebels are communist. More That's than I thought. Like they're 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 card carrying communist. And I think that that probably stems from from that identity, you know the reflect you know that, that workforce culture of the good right. old days. Um, and,
0: and honestly, that proximity to uh, the Russian center of, of um, the Russian political center. Yeah. You know, being in the east, they're closer to Moscow than say l'viv was, right? So. It's kind of like in in new jersey right i like talking about new jersey new jersey is a small state but it's a big state and you know the people that live in northern new jersey are heavily influenced by you know new york culture and sports and the new york economy right whereas people in the south of new jersey are more influenced by philadelphia and philadelphia sports and philadelphia economy right nevertheless all new Jerseyans have like a national or a state identity of being from New Jersey you can kind of see a pretty clear divide in New Jersey of the two New Jerseys north and south in terms of yeah. their their political or uh, i guess political would be uh, it but more like cultural divide right and and it is pretty stark um so it's 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 a it's a matter of proximity to you know political centers in, in the case of geopolitics And in case in New Jersey, it's a matter of proximity to sports powers. (laughs) Yeah,
2: well, people up in in northern they're Yankee fans and Mm Mets fans up in northern Jersey, and then there's Philly fans down in in South Jersey, or there's Eagles fans in South Jersey, and then there's Giants and Jets fans in North Jersey. That's right. So Mm -hmm. it's you know that it's just um, where what metropolitan center that you're closer to to make it as simple as that. Um, you you know, know, even thinking about talk it out different. loud, New
0: Jersey really is is like Ukraine in that respect. They're kind of the borderlands between those two major centers, population centers. To be honest, yeah, and
2: there's no major city in New Jersey. No, there there's is cities there's in New Jersey, of, but there's no. There's plenty major, of major
0: cities. There's, there's no, no. There's m- plenty of major cities. New Jersey has the highest population density in the country. They, yeah, but there's the, no. Some there's of their cities are m- much bigger than other states.
2: Yeah, but there's no city like Philadelphia and New York City are both the top ten. You know, New York's the largest city in America, and then Philadelphia is like the fifth largest city in America, or or sixth, something like that. They're one of the largest cities in the country. Sure, but don't
0: sleep on Jersey because their cities are bigger than most states' biggest cities. All right. By a lot.
2: Compared to
0: the metropolitan
2: (laughs) areas that... We're talking about right now that influence. Yeah, they
0: them. just happen to be stuck between two really big ones. <laughs>
2: yeah, is that okay? So let's talk about um, Viktor Yanukovych, who okay. was the president who was ousted in 2014. Yanukovych was the corrupt guy. He was kind of like a you know, kind of this buffoonish character. Despite his leadership defects and character flaws, Yanukovych had been duly elected that and international observers considered his election to be free and fair. Ironically, Yanukovych, he achieved something democratically that he couldn't achieve through alleged fraud in 2004 because Yanukovych had been was running and then in you know his election was uh, you know he won the presidential election and then observers said no they cheated and then they did another election and then he lost um you know they said you know foreign monitors from Europe and the US said that the presidential election in Ukraine between Yanukovych and Yoshenko had these irregularities and um, you know people say that's a kill but um Yanukovych he wins in 2010 and then he wins because during the Yushchenko years the country was hit hard by global fi- like a, the global financial crisis that began in 2007 and by 2009 Ukraine's GDP had declined by 15% and you know Yushchenko they were corrupt too so people just were like oh, we have enough of you and um after the election in 2010 when, Yoniko- when Yanukovych was in power i mean he was also very corrupt he was a, he used his Patronage and other instruments of the state to enrich m- members of his party, the Party of Regions, and the corruption did alienate a large portion of Ukraine's population. And as the Ukrainian economy fell further behind those of countries like Poland and and other East European neighbors, public anger at Yanukovych it mounted. And Ukraine is a well-educated and resource-rich country, it should be wealthy, but it's always been among the poorest countries in Europe. Ukraine went through a lot of the same things that Russia did after the fall of the Soviet Union. They had, you know, a handful of oligarchs kind of ransack and pillage the country of all its former state assets, where they had this wealthy, rich, this, this super billionaire class, and then everyone else who was poor. So, um, and their leaders have just been kind of salesmen. You know, just selling off their natural resources and things like that. So they've been screwed for a long time. What led to his ousting was his rejection of the European Union's terms for an association agreement in, in late 2013 mm-hmm. in favor of a Russian offer. that, And, um, you know, that was the last straw for many young liberal Ukrainians.
1: It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday and each one is five minutes or less. So you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.
0: That's the IGN Daily Update. Wherever you get your podcasts. Yep, um, and you know, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about the LGBTQ co- communities, you know, th- those those activists were among the original maiden protesters, you know, who helped kind of kick off the 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 maiden protests in general, uh, in part because of. Their, you know, anger towards, you know, not towards Yanukovych, not wanting to move towards uh, the West or specifically, you know, uh, an association program with with uh, with Europe, because that was for them critical to their survival. You know, they wanted they wanted to live peacefully and freely in in Ukraine. And, you know, this was a, a, a community that that had a vested interest in making sure that they went towards Europe. Yeah, and
2: it makes sense. It's, um, you know, the West is is more tolerant of that. So, you know, the story goes, you know, Ukraine was um, suffering an economic crisis. And in November 2013, the European Union offered to bail out Ukraine and integrate them further into the West. Yanukovych was about to sign the agreement, but Putin bullied and bribed him into rejecting it. Thus began Kiev's maiden protest, and all that has followed. Now, that's that's um, kind of the story that we're, we're, we're given, but the reality is, is that it's a lot more complicated. the The EU proposal required the Ukrainian government to enact these harsh austerity measures and would have shortly uh, curtailed its economic relations with Russia. It also ...included protocols requiring Ukraine to adhere to Europe's military and security policies, which meant, in effect, um, without mentioning the alliance, being a quasi-NATO state. You know, when you think about this, this was a, a um, provocation compelling the elected president of a deeply divided country to choose between Russia and the West. Mm-hmm. And when Yanukovych showed up to sign this agreement... The you know, he said that he felt like um, it was he felt like a bride to be greeted on her wedding day with a prenup. That was the word that he, word that he said. He's like, yeah, I feel I feel like a bride on my wedding day, being greeted on her uh, being greeted with a prenup.
0: And the prenup being the austerity measures. Yeah,
2: because they were still trading with Russia. Um, Yanukovych had a. You know, he was trying to play this neutral card between the West and the East at this time. And he wasn't exactly like super pro-Putin. He was pro-Putin compared to, um, you know, the other members of the government. But at this time, we're talking about a country that put Yanukovych in power, who voted for him in a free election. So there was this, uh, you know, I don't want to say pro-Russian, but at least this... Uh, sentiment to put someone who's more even-handed between the West and Russia. Now, um, what Putin did? Putin proposed a a tripartite agreement, including Russia, and um, the EU and Washington refused. To sign it, and then the crisis erupted when Yanukovych asked for more time to consider the EU's financial terms. So, you know that's that's kind of the origin story. You know, the Ukraine is an eastern, is a very divided country, and they were put in a position where they had to choose between the EU and and the and the in Russia, and when they. Chosen correctly, one side of the government was overthrown, <laughs> or the government was overthrown. Now, the idea that Ukraine is Europe rather than Russia is very important to understand. To um, to make sense of the events of the Euromaidan, because there was clear support from the West. Because by the beginning of the Euro the Euro Maiden, Ukraine had a lot of um, foreign offices which influenced civil society and institutions in Ukraine. You know, the major financial support of, of uh, these Western projects had been arranged through the channels of um, the U.S. Agency for International Development mm-hmm the USIA and then Freedom House, Freedom House is a non-profit, um, you know, US government funded organization that conducts, you know, research and advocacy on democracy and, and things like human rights. These are groups that are supposed to promote things like democracy in foreign countries, but You know, they they also have a significant amount of power in these countries because they also control aid spigots. So they have the ability to fund different organizations and create these political connections. Um, Then there's groups like the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs, which had been working in Ukraine since 1992. And, um, you know, these these Western offices were attached to all stages of the electoral process in Ukraine. And it's not surprising that the formation of, uh, you know, pro-Western NGOs was also accompanied by attempts to integrate the entire state into this Western political structure. And the process never really stopped after uh, Yanukovych was elected in 2010. Um, You know, one of the first things that... You know, Yanukovych was the one who was negotiating this association agreement. Um, and, you know, Yanukovych famously was, was uh, being counseled by a Western political consultant to reshape his image, um, Paul Manafort. So he wasn't exactly, I think it's kind of binary to just say, oh, Yanukovych was this, you know, pro-Russian stooge. I I think he was just more of a pro enrich himself stooge you know, trying to yeah. figure out the best plan for himself and to, and, to, and to enrich his cronies I think that's what most evidence points to rather than being a you know really deeply aligned with one side or the other but I mean regardless I understand why people would be fed up with that kind of political leader you know someone who's playing you know who's using the government as an ATM machine Usually, uh, is not very popular, especially when the corruption is so transparent. Um, But for Ukraine to integrate with the with the West, it had to at least resemble a modern European country. Mm -hmm. And the EU, and you mentioned this earlier, the EU put forward a list of uh, you know uh, I think it was like nineteen steps to uh, meet in order to be allowed to sign the association agreement. Right. And this is, this included things like, you know, improving electoral laws and then reforming the police and then reforming the judicial system. It was called Euro integration. And I think as time went on, they ended up like canceling those things. Like, okay, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. Like you just need to do Like you, we know you're not going to be able to achieve that, but, in contrast, the deal with Russia was much more straightforward. It was just like an economic deal. It's like you want money, okay? We'll just give you money to help you to do this. And then the the association deal was actually a loan. So it it was it was the Russian deal was better. To to, to be completely honest, at least a lot better for the government. And um, when the Euro Maidan begins a lot of weird things start to happen. Like, one of the weirdest things is that um, new media companies started to appear out of nowhere to encourage people to get out into the streets and and start protesting the government. So, like, imagine if there was, like, you know, a mass protest movement here. And there there have been mass protest movements in America in the past couple of years. But... Adjacent to that, there were new media networks that just popped up out of nowhere that um, encouraged people to go out and uh, and protest that mo- and, and you know join that
0: protest. Well, I mean, it kind of already happened. Just instead of media companies, it's social media companies. <laughs> so. Yeah, but it's it's
2: where did people get the money to do that? Like where did that all come from? Like these these new media networks and broadcast stations. Mm-hmm. that were uh, that were um, encouraging people to, to join the protest and then you know nationalist groups started showing up to the protest and um, essentially started acting as shock troops so the professor that I had had uh, mentioned before I had read a quote of his earlier about some of the cleavages and or something, a paper that he wrote. He wrote another paper. He's this Canadian political science scientist. Um, and he wrote this paper about the right sector. And he concludes in this paper that right sector staged a false flag sniper attack on protesters to create cha- cha- chaotic violence. And I don't know. I have wrote some of it down do you want me to go through this or do you want to go through this
0: uh it's kind of long but uh let's let's i'll I'll start and then we can pause in between to talk about it i guess um all right so it says that this the paper analyzes a large amount of evidence from different publicly uh, available sources concerning the massacre and killings of specific protesters qualitative content analysis includes the following data about 1500 videos Recordings of live internet and TV broadcasts in mass media and social media in different countries, some 150 gigabytes, news reports and social media posts by more than 100 journalists covering the massacre from Kiev, some 5,000 photos and nearly, nearly 30 gigabytes of publicly available radio intercepts of snipers and commanders from the special alpha unit of the security service of Ukraine and internal troops and maiden massacre trial recordings. The study also employs a field of research on um, on the massacre. Can you not highlight that? I can't see it. <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry. Uh, the study also employs field uh, research on the site of the massacre, eyewitness reports by both maiden protesters and government special unit commanders, statements by both the former and current government officials, estimates of approximate ballistic trajectories, bullets and weapons used, and type of wound among both protesters and the police. The study establishes a precise timeline for the various events of the massacre, the locations of both the shooters and the government snipers, and the specific timeline and location of nearly 50 protesters' death. It also b- briefly analyzes other major cases of violence during and after they were maiden. Uh, the study includes two video appendixes The academic investigation concludes that the massacre was a false flag operation, which was rationally planned and carried out with the goal of overthrow of the government and seizure of power. Okay, so quick pause is basically saying, look at all this evidence. Right. We looked at a ton of shit videos, you know, radio intercepts, pictures, uh, contemporaneous like tweets from journalists, all kinds of stuff. And they're coming to the conclusion that this was. Uh, a false flag um, operation, which is kind of wild because there's so much, so much evidence that they're uh, uh, allegedly putting forward here.
2: Yeah. So I'll link the study. The study has, it, it, the study is, 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 uh, from what I've seen, it, it seems to hold water. Like they really do have just hundreds and hundreds of testimonies from different Sorry. people saying, like, the bullets came from these, you know, the snipers were located here and, and, um, it seems from what I've, I'm, I'm convinced that this, this, this is true. Like that it was the right sector that was, um, shooting people to, uh, throw people into a panic and really just to get people more violent because mm-hmm. if you look at the history of the right sector and you know, they're, um, just like their influence and their, um, their influence was growing a lot and they were getting more radical you know, throughout the, the those years, so there is when Russia says that there is like there is Nazi fascist in Ukraine, they may be exaggerating it, but it's not made up. You know, wrong. There, there is there's there there they exist, and it's just you got to look at if you just look at like the war, hour, or just like the mainstream broadcasting. I mean, there's a lot of times where like these the the these groups are just broadcasted on like CNN. Um. Well, you'll you'll get someone who just says something nuts, yeah. Or there'll be a swastika somewhere, yeah. Uh, just like hanging out, so like or a black sun somewhere, and you're just like, huh?
0: So let's re- let's read a bit more because okay. there's some interesting stuff going on here. Um, okay, so he writes uh, it. This study uh, found various evidence of involvement of an alliance of the far right organizations, specifically the right sector and Svoboda and oligarchic parties such as fatherland concealed shooters and spotters were located in at least 20 maiden controlled buildings or areas the various evidence that the protesters were killed from these locations including some 70 testimonies primarily by maiden protesters several videos of snipers targeting protesters from these buildings comparisons of the position of the specific protesters at the time of their killing and their entry wounds and bullet impact signs wow so they're going straight like CSI on this and they're really, really looking into it. Um, So it says the study uncovered various videos and photos of armed maiden snipers and spotters in many of these buildings. The paper presents implications of these findings in the understanding of the nature of the change in the government of Ukraine and civil war in Donbass, Russian military intervention in Crimea and in Donbass and in international conflict between the West and Russia over Ukraine. The Euromaidan and the change of the government were generally represented in academic studies as a popular movement, which were turned into a revolution and which was motivated by political protest against the authoritarian government, especially uh, its reliance on violence and s- by support of integration of U- uh, Ukraine into the European Union. Many scholars also attributed the violent attacks of the presidential administration and the parliament as a response to the government's violence and political repressions or as a provocations by the Yanukovych government or Russia. They regarded the role of the far-right organizations during the Maiden as insignificant or marginal. Uh, Killings of Armenian, Georgian, Jewish, and Polish protesters and the presence of the right sector during the funeral of Oleksandr Cherbanyuk A Jewish protester, uh, were mentioned in about a dozen stories in major U.S., Israeli, and Scandinavian media as an evidence of the diversity of the protesters, their massacre by the government snipers, and tolerant or moderate nature of the right sector, an alliance of radical nationalist and neo Nazi organizations. The Maiden led government used the Maiden Massacre as a source of its legitimacy and widely commemorated this mass killing and its victims among the protesters. The killed protesters were posthumously awarded the Hero of Ukraine titles by President Petro Poroshenko and the government established February 20th as a day in their honor. A large group of investigators was specifically tasked with solving this massacre's case and their, their investigation involved the interrogations of more than 2,000 people and more than 1,000 ballistic medical and other expert reports. Therefore, it appears irrational that the government investigation for a year and a half since the massacre failed to reveal much of basic evidence and to bring any convictions in such a crucial case okay let's talk about that that's a lot of stuff what do you think what are your thoughts
2: so um i mean first and foremost there are so you know the big contradiction right now is that when people say like hey you can't say that there's neo nazis in ukraine zelensky is jewish that's true zelensky is jewish and um uh kolomoisky the chief backer of these nazis these these groups is also jewish so there's a clear contradiction right here that's kind of hard to digest um Igor Kolomoysky is a Ukrainian oligarch. Um, He, you know, is the main financier of the Azov Battalion. So, there's a lot of these these contradictions, and I actually read this interview from this pro. It was it was it was an interview with like a Russia this um, advisor to Putin and and, an advisor to Yeltsin prior. And he was, you know, kind of making the claim, the justification for the war. And one of the questions asked him was like, "How do you call? You keep on saying denazification, but how do you say denazification when the president is Jewish?" And he was like, "Hey, that's because this president, this uh, these Nazis are their primary goal is to um, is to kill Russians. Like that's their that's what their their primary uh, gripe is about, and." Also to add, the, the Svoboda Party is wildly anti-Semitic as well. You know, they were founded at, in 1991 as the Social Nationalist Party of Ukraine. Social National Party of Ukraine. National
0: Social. <laughs> yeah.
2: Wink, wink. It's, it's Nazi wink, backwards. Wink. Yeah. Um You know, they idolized Stefan, Stefan Bandera. Who you know fought with the, Nazi, the Nazis during World War II, and you know he's a national hero in Ukraine, and you kind of get it. Like he actually, you know, he did kind of turn on the Nazis later in his career, but he still perpetrated the Holocaust, and you know he was a founder of the OUN, which was the ultranationalist movement in in Ukraine during during um, you know the, during World War II, or and um, you know they killed a whole lot of innocent people. But to pull, to pull this back, like they, I mean, there are these anti-Semitic elements in, in these parties. The first play, it, there was a, a warning that was issued by, um, I think it was issued by some Israeli uh, human rights organization saying that it was like a warning to the Jews in the area that they may not be safe in Ukraine. And... Um, one of the, there was um, a play that was allegedly on a New Year's Day, I think it was New Year's Day in 2015. There was this play that didn't really catch uh, attention, but it was on the, the main stage of the Euro Maiden. And it was like an anti-Semitic um, play about the birth of Jesus. And it combined the Ukrainian, like Ukrainian contemporary politics with, you know, like the elements of like a passion play, and it was what, called what they just? Like the they went like
0: full Mel Gibson on it,
2: <laughs> like yeah, kind of. So it was called um, it was called the Zid, or it was it was the Zid.
0: Mm, where, I remember
2: this. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and um, you you can leave up. You know the the Zid is an anti-Semitic slur, and it's about um, you know, this guy who is uh like selling off the state-run assets, and, and the guy happens to be like a stock market speculator and a talk show host, and he is bribing Yanukovych, and then there's King Herod is in the play. It's a really bizarre thing. So there are these elements that are there that should raise immediate red flags. You know, there's a there's a play, and I don't think there's any way to look at a swastika and not see that as a incredibly anti-Semitic symbol.
0: Yeah.
2: Like there's no there's no it's, it's some symbols are just so poisoned that there's no excuse to the the be seen and and to wear them or the or to
0: represent them. So, I mean, here, here's where I'm stuck on this on this particular thing. So especially after looking at some of the evidence that. You know that this professor this canadian professor put out like it seems to me pretty clear that the far right in ukraine did some fucked up shit took advantage of a of a protest and and you know whether or not the implications of that directly um resulted in the coup i'm i'm still uncertain about and i think the reason i'm still uncertain about this is because it's Elevating the significance of these Nazis and 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 diminishing the significance of the non-Nazi majority uh, that were generally pissed off at the Ukrainian government. You know what I mean? It it almost a lot of the arguments that I hear for or against the you know the situation in Ukraine right now are centered around. Either, you know, Yanukovych was a puppet. We overthrew him. Now we want to because we want to be a thing, and we don't want to be a, a vassal state to to Russia. That's the one argument. And the second argument is like, oh no, that's a bunch of Nazis took over the Ukrainian government, and that's not a thing. It's not real. You know, I feel like they're it's it's just ignoring some of the realities here. And you know, it's it's and and I I keep coming back to this LGBTQ thing because. You know these these you know these the this community is not a community of nazis right and they were among the first people and and some of the loudest you know proponents of um of the peaceful part of the uh um of the protest and and for them specifically they had their their initiatives and their prerogatives and their prerogatives where they wanted to join europe right they felt Ukrainian, of course, but they wanted to join the greater European community, um, largely because they felt it was a better bet for them, you know, uh, in, in being able to live freely and, and, and without, you know, persecution. And so this small group that was you know, important to the beginning of that, that protest had nothing to do with Nazis, had nothing to do with whether or not, you know, Yanukovych was a Russian puppet or not all they wanted was you know their rights and i think they get overlooked because it was at least it appears that they that this movement was co-opted by these super right-wing people and you know to the the right sector's own admission you know we might have only been eight percent but we you know if we weren't there 90 percent of this revolution wouldn't happened you know so it makes me think out loud you know like would they had had the right sector not joined in militarily and and aggressively, what kind of world would we live in? You know, would would the voices of the Ukrainians who were already, you know, pissed off at the state that had nothing to do with Nazis, would they have been able to uh, exert change democratically, freely? It's kind of the question I, that I keep asking myself. We don't we don't you know, we I don't, don't know. know
2: we don't know that world, but I, I can tell you one thing is that um, everyone is worse off right now from the events (laughs) that happened from 2014 on. So it's, listen, man, I wouldn't want to be fucking, I wouldn't want to be part of, I'm an American citizen. I'm very happy to be an American citizen. I wouldn't want to be a citizen anywhere else in the world. If I was going to choose, if I had to be a citizen anywhere else, it would be a liberal democracy most likely either in Canada or Europe or Australia or wherever it would not be Russia. It would not be Ukraine. It would not be pretty much anywhere in Eastern Europe. My heritage is Eastern European. I would not want, I I wouldn't want to be a citizen there. Um, I would, I completely understand hating your government. Believe me. I understand hating your government more than most people. And, um, Wanting to um, get real change, especially when you have on the on the corruption index, Ukraine is like is, you know, among the most corrupt countries in the world. There's a good reason to protest. There's a good reason to want to seek assimilation with the West. Um, And there's um, there's good reason to want to distance yourself from Russia because it's true. Russia does see Ukraine as their. Vassal, or their right you know you know they're kind their of this sta- block of territory that they <laughs> yeah. have the right to use as a buffer and and um, you know for their own geopolitical interest and you I mean I understand that you resent that but um, it's it becomes a complicated question because you're attached to a nation where a huge percentage of the people, don't want to move in that direction and you're forcing them to go along with the movement that they didn't sign up for and it's just one of the the um problems with just uh the realities of just like a, a government you know they have a monopoly of a violence and sometimes those borders within the monopoly of violence don't all have the same agenda or don't all have all the same priorities. And, um, you know, there's this power struggle that develops to get that monopoly on violence. And sometimes it can get really nasty. What my take is, and I think you can share the take is that the U S shouldn't be doing things to inflame possible violence and and just, yeah, inflame the violence. And, uh, it seems that the West has, has done that and it's, you know, we're living with the consequences, but it sucks. My friend, my friend was, is, um, my friend was, was in Ukraine for a little bit and he was telling me like, Hey, I'm like, I have a, I have a lot of friends in Ukraine. They're definitely not far right. They're like, you know, they're from Kiev they're like normal people who want to be like part of the West, and they want to be American. You know, they, they would love to be American, but they don't have any money. They can't even immigrate. Like they don't, they're they literally d- don't have the the means to immigrate from Ukraine. They're stuck there, and um, you know they're they're just kind of stuck in this horrible situation. And that's that sucks. That's horrible. But now we're talking about a situation that has developed. Into an international global crisis, and uh, there's no complicated solution. It means like saying no, we can't help you, which is like a real sad thing. You know, you feel it, you're like, man, we, no, sorry, we can't help. But and there's just no easy answers.
0: I hear that, man. I think, and and to, to be honest, for a lot of the folks, I mean, there's what four and a half million at this point that have fled Ukraine. So for the folks that really wanted to be a part of the West, they certainly could stick around now, I suppose. You know,
2: you get refugee more. crisis, uh, refugee status. Yeah, but a lot of it, a lot of it is is um, more anti-Russian geared. Um, and you know, there's been.
0: I mean, I think you I bring know. up a really good point, you know, with with this maiden, because, you know, as we as we outlined in the beginning, the the western part of Ukraine was was culturally more aligned with the West, and the eastern part of Ukraine was culturally more aligned with Russia, and so I don't actually know what the demographics of the year maiden was generally speaking, in terms of its its uh, like. What proportion of people from the west versus what proportion of the people from the east were there? But my suspicion is that fewer people from the east were involved. I'm sure they were pissed off at the Ukrainian government, but just for different reasons, you know. Um,
2: well, I mean, the pro there. I mean, Crimea was an example of of a region of the country that was about ninety percent against the maiden protest. Mm-hmm. Eastern the Donbass region. Against the Maidan protest, even Odessa, there was a big movement against the maiden protest. A lot of the parts of the southeast are against the were against the maiden protest. So, mm-hmm. and that's before all know, they all felt the, the they Nazi felt that the maiden it, right? protest was an actual anti-Russian movement, and that the Russian was going to turn around and the the, the new government was going to turn around and, and um, hurt persecute them, persecute them, and they were yeah. true. <laughs> that was actually true. Like you know, after the move after that, the Euro Maidan uh, government came in. Um, they they did pursue hostile policies towards the Russian right. population. They outlawed the Russian language and mm-hmm. um, even Ukrainian like pro-Ukrainian people are will, will tell you that, that that was a really dumb thing to do by uh, the Poroshenko government was to outlaw Russian um, So it's
0: I mean it makes it makes they me have me think a about legitimate right too you know that that's that, that's so true. And again i wonder if these folks that were originally protesting you know this this protest was 100 percent co-opted by you know the far right they increased their political stature in by creating a violent um, event and they're the ones that ended up coming in power and their main motivations We're to kill Russians, (laughs) you know? But then there's another
2: contradiction in that too, because Zelensky's voted, voted in, in 2019, and he runs on a pro-peace platform. Right. The Minx too is a pro-peace platform that really sought to make peace with the, with, with uh, the Eastern part of the country to implement, to implement um, autonomy for them to, to, to not pull the country further into war and, Zelensky ran into a situation where he was, I think, believe he was threatened by the far right because Poroshenko, when he was taking an easier line, um, he was threatened by the the far right in Ukraine. So I, I think he was like, man, these people are going to try to kill me if I... If I uh, am seen to be capitulating at
0: all, um, and, and today we kind I of mean, see the same thing, even just outside of the, the far right, it's like capitulating to any kind of peace deal here would be seen as capitulation, putting Zelensky in kind of an awkward position as well. So, yeah. you know, really, if if you're gonna if you're gonna place any any negative thoughts, this is going to be against this this far right, you know, aspect of the. Uh, of the Ukrainian people, you know this this right sector. Well,
2: there, there's there's blame there's blame for everyone. I mean, there's there's a lot of blame for Russia. There's a lot of blame for the EU. There's a lot of blame for Washington. There's a lot of blame for the right
0: sector. Right.
2: There's a lot of blame for a lot of there's a lot of blame to go around. And,
0: um, and this I, is all on the shoulders of the regular Ukrainian people. Yes, yeah, all the shoulders of regular
2: people. And it. yeah, it's. A, now the country is destroyed like where that's where we are at we're where the country John Mearsheimer's uh prediction where the country was going to get wrecked absolutely happened and now it's like a matter of kind of realizing what the policy was and what happened and and trying to find something the solution where people don't die you know where the least amount of people will get killed as possible
0: i mean um, at this point i think that the solution for that would be Donbass becomes its own thing. Just plain and simple. <laughs> you know, like I don't see any other way around that. There's no way that that there is a unification of Ukraine in in my opinion to where it once was. I just don't see that as yeah. a thing.
2: It's certainly I think I think that's true. Um all right. I'm um, it's um we've been podcasting for the past 4 hours. <laughs> yeah, it's time to I think, end this thing. Um, good. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um, so again, this episode was recorded on April 10th. So it's probably being released later, either a, at much least a later. week. <laughs> yeah. Much yeah. later. But um, I, we just wanted to make sure that we got an episode out um, if we were to miss a week. And uh, we figured we'd just have a conversation about just some of the things that we've been reading about and, and looking at into and I hope hopefully you found this interesting if you want to support the show rate and review the podcast that is the number one way to support the show you can rate us on Apple you can rate us on Spotify you can also join us on Patreon where you get access to our Slack account Uh, so join us there and uh, Danny anything else you want to add no man all good for me all right peace everyone peace